When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. And we are currently experiencing lockdown here in the state of California. We hope each and every one of you is safely isolating during this crisis. Now, this is the Art of Charm podcast, a show where we bring you actual tips and strategies on how to supercharge your social skills and turn that boring small talk into smart talk, surrounding yourself with an army of high-status individuals to grow your social capital. And unlock your hidden charisma to crush it in business, love, and life. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum each and every week. Well, that's what we do here at The Art of Charm. And if you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends. Are you a maximizer? Are you someone that always wants to become the best at what you do? Are you ready for an unfair advantage? Well, there's a secret game being played around you, and you might not even be aware of it. Did you know that over 70% of jobs are found through your network? And now is the best time to be growing that network. Your network opens doors that you didn't even know existed. You know you're awesome. You know you're smart. And you know that you put in the hard work. Are you ready to finally start getting real results? If you're listening to this show, there is a good chance that you are a maximizer. You probably have a workout routine. You have a steady diet that you've been sticking towards. And you have goals in your life that you want to achieve. So let's accelerate those results. Ready to become extraordinary? Head over to theartofcharm slash accelerate to learn more. That's theartofcharm.com slash accelerate. And now let's get started with the show. Today, we have Dan Heath with us. If that name rings a bell, well, it should. You've probably heard a lot in combination with his brother, Chip. Chip and Dan Heath, or the Heath brothers, as they're also known, have written best-selling books, Made to Stick, Switch, Decisive, and one of my all-time favorites, The Power of Moments. Dan's new book, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen, came out a short while ago. We love the book, and of course, in today's times, it's even more important that we look upstream to solve our problems, and we're super excited to have Dan with us today. Dan, welcome to the show. Obviously, when we got the book and we started thinking about this interview, we did not have this crisis on our hands, and as Johnny and I got excited, we are massive fans of the work that you've done with your brother, The Power of Moments, Switch, Made to Stick, all phenomenal books. And here we're thinking upstream, huh? This is a pretty interesting topic. How is this relevant to sort of us at The Art of Charm? And now this crisis erupts and we're starting to see the issues when leadership has not thought upstream, especially when a crisis is upon us. I think it's also easy to not look upstream because we live in a very reactive society. And as human beings, we tend to react naturally to things that are happening around us to look upstream is to override some natural human behaviors. And 
Dan, I just wanted to say that I have a war board, which is a dry erase board in my living room. And it's where I place ideas that, that I'm entertaining, that I need to flesh out are on my consciousness as I'm implementing them and learning them. And I can tell you the sentence that is on my war board is the system is perfect for the results that you're getting. <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, that has brought a whole new lens to not only everything that is going on in my life that I'm unsatisfied with, but also with this crisis of, hey guys, there are obviously systems that are broken. So, Yeah, I, I agree. That was one of my favorite quotes that I came across in researching this. <laughs> I, I should give a shout out to the author of the quote, a guy named Paul Batalden, who is a healthcare expert. And, and the exact quote goes, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And there's something about that quote that the more you think about it, the more it just kind of worms its way into your thinking. Apparently, you had the same yes. experience. Mm -hmm. But it's so true, right, that if you look at any system that is producing the same results, whether you're talking about, I write a story in the book about the Chicago public schools and and for a while, year in, year out, they were graduating no more than about 50% of their students. I mean, year after year. I mean, that's a system that has been designed to fail half its students. Or, or you could look at home. You know, you think every single day I'm rushing in the morning to get my kids out and we're almost late for school every day. Well, you've got a system that is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And, and when you start to look at the world through that kind of systems lens, I think sometimes it can be revelatory. I think sometimes you can realize that some of the things you're doing unwittingly contributing to the problems you're facing. I think for us, a quote that comes to mind that we've been talking about internally is never letting a good crisis go to waste and really looking at our systems internally now and having to innovate and evolve as a brand from a business who was client-facing, coaching people in person here in Los Angeles to now moving everything on Zoom, as we were laughing about earlier, and moving everything digitally, we really have had to take a look at all of our systems in this crisis and try to understand, you know, are the systems built getting the results that we want or are they built getting the results that we're unhappy with? Mm. And for many of us, this idea of downstream, upstream is a little foreign. So could you explain to our audience what you mean by upstream versus downstream? Yeah, so that terminology came from a parable I heard uh, about 11 or 12 years ago, and, and it goes like this. By the way, this is uh, often attributed to uh, Irving Zola. So you and a friend are having a picnic uh, on the bank of a river, and you've just laid out your blanket, you're about to have a nice meal, and then you hear a shout from the direction of the river. And you look back over your shoulder and there's a child in the river thrashing around, apparently drowning. So you both instinctively dive in and you, you rescue the child. You bring them to the shore of the river. And just as your adrenaline is starting to die down a little bit, you hear another shout. You look back, there's another kid in the same situation. So back in you go and you fish them out. And no sooner have you done that, you hear two shouts. Now there's two kids in the river. And, and so begins this kind of revolving door of rescue where you're in and out and in and out and it's getting exhausting. And then you notice your friend swimming toward the shore and stepping out as though to leave you alone. And you go, hey, where are you going? I can't do this by myself. All these kids need our help. And your friend says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. 
<laughs> and I think that, in a nutshell, is what this book is about. It's about how so often in our lives and in our work, we get trapped in this way of reacting to problems as they happen. And we're, we're putting out fires and we're responding to emergencies. And we can get stuck in that mode for so long that we may even forget that, hey, what if we could solve at the systems level uh, the problems that we're spending every day facing? And the book is about uh, the importance of that and, and our need to shift resources and attention uh, and, and ideas upstream and also why that can be rather difficult. And for a lot of us, we're watching this play out before our eyes. And you bring up in the book the American healthcare system and how it's not geared to look upstream as much as other countries are. And we're now seeing this play out in real time with what our medical professionals are facing. This fact that our leaders did not look upstream, did not look immediately to locking us down, to testing aggressively like you see in other countries who have been able to stabilize and flatten the curve. And now we're faced with, well, where are the ventilators? Where are the masks? And not even really understanding that we could, if we looked upstream and built systems upstream, probably mitigated majority of this crisis that we're facing. What is so unique about the American system that has really led to us only focusing downstream? It's a hard question to untangle. And the frustrating thing about the situation that we're in now, at least while we're recording this, is that there's a lot of problems in the world that are difficult to gauge. When you talk about a, a kind of long tail problem like what if artificial intelligence takes over someday or you know, what if an asteroid collides with Earth? I mean, I think those are real risks that are very hard to quantify. Like how much effort should we put across to stop the asteroid scenario? And I think there's a lot of debating that can go on there. The Y2K is something I write about in the book, the Y2K episode. A lot of smart people struggled with how real is this? I mean, is, is civilization going to come to an end or is this all just a scam by a bunch of consultants to get us to spend money? But this was not one of those situations. This was a situation that was completely foreseeable. And in fact, it was foreseen. I mean, there are many experts who are on record for decades uh, saying one of the biggest risks to this planet and to the civilization is a pandemic. And, and a lot of people knew enough to know it might well be some strain of influenza coming from China. Um, not only was it foreseeable, the preparations were, were relatively well understood. I mean, look, we don't have control over whether a virus circulates but we do have control over the health systems that can respond to those difficulties. And look, I'm, I'm no pandemic expert, but I've talked to a lot of people who are, and they have very clear ideas of how you get ready for something like this. And the problem was, as is the problem with many upstream issues, there's always something more urgent. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There's always something that's on fire today. And so when the people come up and say, hey, we're still not ready for that pandemic we've been talking about for the last decade, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we've got to worry about the unemployment rate right now or, oh, you know, we're, we're in a healthcare fight or uh, China's doing some stuff that makes us mad. There's always something to crowd out, as Stephen Covey once said, these important but not urgent problems. Well, the unfortunate thing is that important problem has become urgent and, and we weren't ready, as you said. And I also think one of the points that the book makes that's so fascinating is that, you know, rewards are typically given to solve existing problems. Mm-hmm. You're not promoted for stockpiling masks or ventilators for a future event. You're promoted because you made the company or the hospital more profitable. Exactly right. It's like there's a disjunction here. I talked to a, a woman named Julie Pavlin who said, um, by the way, she's somebody who's, who's worked for infectious diseases for the army. And she said, in public health, if you do your job right, they cut your budget because nobody's getting sick. And that's what you're talking about is, is when we really do this right, what happens is nothing. The crisis comes and goes, and probably some people are grousing in the corner that, oh, well, we put too much preparation against that. Clearly, that was nothing. You know, Y2K is another great example of that. I talked to the guy who was the Y2K czar, John Koskinen, and he said as soon as he took the job, this was during the Clinton administration, Clinton had asked him to be the czar, and he said, I knew this was a no-win job because if I blew it and we weren't prepared, I would be the guy that everybody pointed their finger at. And if we succeeded, if, you know, the the millennium came and went and and civilization did not go up in flames and people could get money out of ATMs and so forth— then everybody would say, oh, well, that was all a bunch of hooey. Why did we spend so much effort on that? And, and this is the kind of um, the unfortunate distinction that we draw between heroes and non-heroes is in our minds, a lot of times heroes are people who rush in to save the day. It's the firefighter putting out flames. It's the first responders. It's policemen. It's lifeguards fishing people out of a pool. And we never think about all those people who kept the day from needing to be saved. Because a lot of times the things they do are quiet and, and even invisible. You know, somebody changed building codes to make buildings less likely to go up in flames. Who are they? Would we ever know their name? Would we ever know that they succeeded? 
Who was it that changed the way lifeguards scan pools to make them more effective and less likely to have a blind spot? You know, kind of a boring thing, right? Would we even know that they exist? Would we even know they, they succeeded? And so part of my motivation in writing this book was to try to, to equalize, if you will, our sense of heroism and that the people who keep us from getting into emergencies deserve as much of our esteem uh, and our applause as the people who bail us out once they've happened. Well, we are certainly seeing a lot of heroes arise in this crisis of, in the form of the grocery store clerks who are there every day to make sure that they're ringing up our stuff, the delivery drivers who are making sure that those shipments are getting to the stores, and all those supply lines that are continually, at least at this point, and thankfully rolling out. We're now celebrating those heroes. And to give it one more easy analogy for all the sports fans— we all know that football games are won and lost in the trenches. And if if we don't know your number or your name and you're on the line, that means you've done your job. There is no reason for you to get called out. We've only recognized the guys who've let in the pass rusher who just sacked Tom Brady. Now we know we know who that guy is. So true. So yeah, it's like I did a um a speech a few years back for for network administrators. And it was a similar dynamic, you know, it's like you only get top management's attention when something goes wrong, when <laughs> when the, the retail website goes down, all of a sudden, you know, you're in their office. But all of the things you did to sacrifice and, and maximize uptime and build redundancy uh, and have mirrored sites, it's like, well, that's just your job. That's the disjunction I mean between the sudden influx of attention and resources that comes with emergencies and and the relatively boring but admirable reality of trying to prevent those emergencies. And the collaboration necessary, mm -hmm. right? A lot of our teams in an organization are specialized and optimized for their own KPIs, their own deliverables. And unfortunately, solving problems upstream involves collaboration and not just being focused on your own metrics, but thinking about how other metrics are influencing yours and the company's bottom line. Well said. And in fact, this is one of the themes of the book is that organizations push us to specialize. We have business units and we have functions within those and we create these silos. And the reason we do that is because from a certain perspective, it works quite well. It, it makes us efficient and productive, but it can also blind us to things that kind of live in the space between silos. So like one of my favorite stories is um, Expedia, the, the travel site on the web. Uh, a few years back, there was a guy named Ryan O'Neill who was digging into some data from the call center. So Expedia has a 1-800 number. You know, if something goes wrong with your reservation, you can get a human being on the phone. And Ryan O'Neill figures out that at that moment in time, for every 100 people who booked a reservation on Expedia, hmm. 58 of them end up calling this 1-800 number. I mean, just preposterous numbers, like six out of 10 have something go wrong. And he's like, what in the world has happened here? And so he starts digging into the numbers and it turns out the number one reason people are calling is to get a copy of their itinerary that they booked. <laughs> no more sophisticated than that. 20 million calls were placed in 2012 of people asking for a copy of their itinerary. That's like every man, woman, and child in Florida calling for help in one year. So what do they do? Well, 
Ryan O'Neill and his boss, they uh, circulate this internally. They, they try to light a fire. And sure enough, the CEO at that time creates a kind of war room where he brings together people across silos and says, our mission is to keep customers from needing to call us. You know, what a tragedy for them and for us. And the, the technical solutions actually come very smoothly. You know, how do you keep people from calling for an itinerary? Well, you change the way you send the itinerary so they don't end up in the spam folder, which is a big problem. You give people ways to do self-service online. And, and if they end up calling, you give them an IVR option, press two to get an automated itinerary sent to you, that sort of thing. So basically over a period of years, they go from 20 million calls to effectively zero calls. But to your point, I think the more interesting thing here is not how did they solve this problem, but why did this problem emerge? Like, why wasn't there a red light alarm signal flashing, sounding when you hit like the eight millionth call for an itinerary? You know, how do you ever get in this sort of pickle? And I think the answer is it was no one's job to worry about that. You have these silos, and each one of them has a piece of the puzzle. The marketing team, their job is to funnel people to Expedia. And then the product team has to design a site that is so intuitive and easy that people are kind of funneled toward a transaction. And then you've got your tech team that's maximizing uptime. And you've got the call center people. And, and how are they measured? Well, they've got to get people off the phone as quick as possible while still keeping the customers happy. And all of these metrics and goals make sense at an individual level. I mean, all of those track. But then if you ask whose job is it to keep customers from needing to call us, the answer was nobody. And that's the nature of upstream problems is there are certain problems that are very specialized. You know, if your house is on fire, the fire department will come out and put it out. That's their job. They're going to respond to the emergency. It's very easy to point and say they own that situation. But if you ask a different question, whose job is it to keep your house from catching on fire? That's a complicated question. I mean, you as the homeowner, you have part of it. The fire department has part of it. The city and the people who write the building codes have part of it. The people who built your house have part of the ownership of that. In these tricky, complex, complicated issues where lots of people have partial ownership, one tendency is nothing happens until you reach an emergency and then ownership becomes clear again. And I think right now for anyone who's tuning in to the news and social media, we have a lot of finger pointing and a lot of yes. blaming going around. And here's the thing, I've been guilty of it myself. And what struck me in the book is this inattentional blindness. Mm. And you had this great example of pathologists looking at specimens and a hidden image of a gorilla in the specimen. And I see the gorilla right away. I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is obvious. How do these professionals who are highly trained miss it? I flip a few pages and you remind me that actually there's a couple of page numbers missing in this book you were just reading. And I'm like, duh, you got me too. <laughs> so I think, you know, it's really easy for us to look at leaders and point the finger. You should have done this. And why didn't you do this? Why didn't you heed this warning? But we all fall into these blind spots, these issues, this inattentional blindness that leads to these problems arising. And I think it's so easy to cast blame. It's a lot more difficult to look internally and say, hey, you know, maybe I'm just as guilty of this, not realizing it. I think that's a good point. And, you know, as we start to 
cast our thoughts on what happens after the quarantine period, what happens after we eventually have some positive signs about uh, this pandemic. The next logical question is, what do we need to do for the next one of these? Or what other problems are we blind to now? And, and those are very hard questions, and, and we'll have a lot of differences of opinion. But, but one thing I want to share that may be more practical, and I think this, this pandemic is teaching us, is that there are, there are just certain muscles that we need to exercise to be ready when weird things happen. I was talking to this guy named uh, Jeff Freeman, who is a researcher at Johns Hopkins APL, the Applied Physics Laboratory. And we were actually talking about disaster and emergency preparedness. And he was saying, in the old world, what you would do is you'd have a plan for different things. You'd get a bunch of smart people together and you'd say, okay, what happens if if Ebola hits and everybody would make the plan and then it would kind of sit on a shelf. And the idea was if Ebola ever hit, you pull it off the shelf and you'd have your plan. And he said, the flaw with that theory was the plan is only a, a small part of your overall ability to succeed, that, that much more of it is about systems and collaboration and communication. And so he had this, this great way of thinking about it. He said, we need to give a day job to these systems and technologies that we're going to need in an emergency. And what he meant is you can't have like an emergency system that you use to track coronavirus infections that, you know, is sitting on the shelf of an IT department in a health system. And you're going to like install that system and start using it when coronavirus emerges. It's impossible. It's just too complicated with all the other things you're going to be juggling in the moment. So what Jeff Freeman was saying is we've got to figure out how to get people practice with the essentials of disaster response before there's a disaster. And so he, in the health world, he was giving examples of how the kind of information that we're relying on now of hospitals testing positive results. I mean, I think we take that for granted, right? That every day in the news, we're getting this kind of summed up data on how the virus is spreading. That's an amazing public health accomplishment. I mean, think about all the different health systems in this country, and they're all working on slightly different IT systems, and they all may count things slightly differently. And yet every day we're able to look at a national number. That's a major victory. And it's because we've begun to piggyback the emergency efforts on systems that people use every day. So for a non-pandemic organization, you know, maybe a lot of you listening are, are working from home, surprisingly, for the first time in, in a long time because of the situation. You know, one thing I think we do know is whatever the next emergency is, whether it's a, a coronavirus like this or something else, is we're probably going to be working from home again. And so remote collaboration, the use of tools like Zoom or Slack or whatever your organization is using, those are the kinds of muscles that we need to be building. And we don't have to be a genius. We don't have to identify and perfectly predict what the next emergency is going to be. There are certain routines, certain systems, certain ways of collaborating that we know we're going to need in a lot of different emergency situations. And so, you know, if, if, if I was an executive in a big company, you know, kind of grappling with the emergency right now, but also thinking in the back of my mind about how do I get ahead of the next emergency, those day job kinds of things is what I would be thinking about right now. 
it's interesting that you bring that up because I feel I just recently read that one of the reasons that South Korea was able to get so ahead of things is because they actually did a drill or exercise around this disaster preparation in December. Mm -hmm. And by going through that drill and practicing it, right, not letting it just collect dust on the shelf and hope that we can flawlessly execute it when the crisis arrives, but building in preparedness as just a part of our daily lives, something we need to be more conscious of, I think is going to be a, a major shift after this crisis is over and we're, we're outside of this quarantine situation. And really, I hope that all of us pay a little more heed to the warnings that the system is sending our way, that we may not be as prepared as we think. Well, to go along with that, if I'm not mistaken, South Korea and America both on the same day had their first registered coronavirus case. If that doesn't share a lot of how these things were responded to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're in the midst of a of a very tragic and unfortunate experiment on different ways of handling exactly the same problem. And we're seeing how different countries respond. We're seeing how different states within the United States respond. You know, the difference in in speed of response in California versus New York, for instance. And the bad news is a lot of people are going to suffer if they were in a location that didn't handle it well. And the only good news is that that we've learned something as a result of this. And next time it happens, hopefully we'll be a little smarter. But I want to add, just for the sake of context, I learned something about Hurricane Katrina in researching this book that blew my mind that relates to the point you just made about um, you know, South Korea doing a simulation. Believe it or not, a year before Katrina hit, so Katrina hit in uh, 2005. In 2004, the um, FEMA via a vendor called IEM had arranged a simulation of a catastrophic hurricane hitting New Orleans. No joke. I mean, they, they foresaw this perfectly. It was just like the pandemic thing. For years, experts had worried about the effects if a hurricane would hit New Orleans because of its geography. And so they'd done something about it. They got together all the relevant players, the state players, the city players, the federal players. They created this simulation called Hurricane Pam. And I mean, this thing was uncannily close to Katrina in terms of the way they set it up and, and how many people would be out of power and how many people would be underwater and so forth. I mean, it's a very accurate anticipated scenario. And they went through this and they practiced and they figured out, hey, what would we do? And where would we get trucks? Where would we get helicopters? And where, where would the first responders go? And how would we get information? It was exactly what you would want people to be doing. And this PAM simulation was supposed to be the first in a series of things that were going to happen over the next year. And then what happened was FEMA decided to cancel the remainder of the follow-up sessions and reporters that study this said it was because of their inability to come up with travel expenses, which would have amounted to about $15,000. And then after Katrina hit, the government ended up spending $62 billion to rebuild the Gulf Coast areas demolished by Katrina. And so it's like the perfect evidence of our penny-wise, pound-foolish approach to these issues you know, it's like, well, should we be spending $15,000 on these drills? That's a lot of money and budgets are tight. You know, uh, it's not urgent today. So let's just say no to this. And then $62 billion later, we realized, you know, the error of our ways. So that's part one of the story. Part two, though, is this 
one-off simulation that could have been much better had they continued with it. But just this one-off simulation started a chain of events that led to a practice that saved a ton of lives in Katrina. It's called, and, and this was the thing that blew me away because I'd never even heard this word, contraflow. So contraflow is what they do in situations like this where they need a lot of people to evacuate a city at the same time. And, and what it means is the interstate highways, you know, which are obviously divided, some go in one way, some go in the other way, they all point one direction. And in evacuation, obviously, you want everybody going out of New Orleans, And so this is an incredibly complicated thing to do. I mean, imagine blocking off every entrance ramp on the other side of the freeway and and imagine having to educate drivers that it's okay to do this. And and what do you do if a car breaks down in the middle of a massive evacuation? So it's a super complicated thing. They did a lot of work. They did a lot of communication. They anticipated problems. They tested it out with another hurricane. And by the time of Katrina, they had this thing working pretty smoothly. And they managed to evacuate more than 1.2 million people, which, if I'm not mistaken, was the fastest and most effective evacuation to that point in our history. And the effect of that is that some estimates suggest we saved tens of thousands of lives just because of contraflow, because of our ability to evacuate people out of New Orleans so they wouldn't be there when the storm hit. So am I saying that actually Katrina was a, a success? I mean, no, it was, it was a calamity. We all remember the, the Superdome video, and, and there's a lot to be ashamed of with our response. But it's complicated. We can be ashamed of, of one part of the response and proud of another part that saved a lot of lives. And then to, to reconnect to your original point, the very reason we saved all those lives is because we took the time to practice, to simulate the problem that was going to happen. Well, there's certainly a lot to say about disasters that are in such scale. Certainly, this is, we've had some scares with SARS and swine flu and and some others, but for it to come in this level with its incubation period the way it is and how contagious it was, there's going to be mistakes made. And we hope that we're going to learn from them for the next time. You know, when this happened, my very first thought was Katrina because of here's how our government responded to a disaster that we all knew at some point was going to come, but everyone blew it off. And I used to live in North Carolina where if there was a hurricane warning, we had gotten used to just making it a hurricane party (laughs) because that was how few they actually came through. It was a uh, 96 or 97 when Hurricane Fran actually turned into North Carolina and crushed us. We had two weeks without power, but it happened so frequently that we just got used to it being the yelling wolf thing. And, and I think for a lot of folks, well, well, certainly we saw it that this is a hoax. This is not as big as they say it's going to be, but this was the time that it actually was as bad as as we made it out to be. Yeah, well, it, it's even worse than that. I mean, back to this notion of, of heroism. So, so one problem is false positives where, where we think something really bad is going to happen and then it just doesn't. We kind of get lucky. That, that's the story of a lot of hurricanes where, you know, despite our mm-hmm. best science, we think it's going to hit North Carolina and then it veers away. At this point, there's nothing we can do about that. I mean, until we improve our ability to model the world's climate 
you know, there's going to be some some missed calls. So that's part of the story. The other part of the story is, you know, back to this notion that when, when you do a good job, you get your budget cut. It's like excellence in this domain kind of looks like irrelevance. You know, if you handled something so well that the problem didn't happen, then people are just kind of like, well, that wasn't a big deal. <laughs> you know, so, it, so it's kind of this trap. And my hope is that if people read this book and they start thinking about these ideas, that we just become sensitized to the power of quiet competence. You know, all those people listening to this that are kind of doing behind-the-scenes work that are not putting out fires, that are not reaping the glory, but who know they're the ones thinking about what's going to happen next month and next year, and they're the ones making the smart tweaks to the systems to prevent those things from breaking out. I want them to know that they are seen and that they are appreciated. And I think living through this coronavirus stuff where all of a sudden we're starting to really appreciate the people who are working at the convenience stores and the grocery stores and the people trucking in our food and the people delivering our packages, like maybe we're seeing and appreciating them in a way that we weren't a couple of months ago. For me, it, there was this aspect of it where it has been every science fiction movie that we've ever seen. There's this one guy in the lab who's been warning everybody that, that this is coming and he's always been a bit of a crank. His hair has always been always shot. Gold shot. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, they're... We, when we look at this, and now because of social media, it is now on record of all these people who did sound the alarm, who were out there screaming from the top of their lungs that this is it. And hopefully for this interview, we find out those people and we, we look to see what they knew and what they saw and were able to look more upstream because the other things that I had seen was... We have been very lucky up to this point, and if we don't change much, this is going to be a very a reoccurring theme. Well, I think one of my biggest concerns of all of this is the disinformation and the fact that we're now distrusting our leaders more than ever. And the very topical one right now is whether or not to wear masks. And we're looking at our leaders, we're looking at some experts, and they're telling us, save them for the medical professionals. You don't need them. And it's changing, of course. Now the news, and by the time this airs, we'll probably all be wearing masks because just how relevant they are. But there is this level of distrust that's now being built based on our woeful response to this crisis that worries me. Because the people that we need to be paying attention to and heeding their warnings have been shuffled to the side. We have a lot of leaders pandering to whoever their followers and their base are around what they would have done or what they could have done. And if we're not trusting of our leaders, it's going to be very hard in the next crisis to rally everyone together to actually be collaborative enough to save lives, to save people. Yeah, I worry about that same thing too. I mean, this feels like, I mean, maybe it's just my lack of, of historical understanding, but it feels like certainly the first time in the U.S., when something really bad has happened that required, you know, the population to act in a new way, where there was a significant chunk of the population that just kind of didn't believe the bad thing was happening or that it required a shift in behavior. And that, that feels really weird and really dangerous. I'm not smart enough to solve that problem, but I just want to acknowledge what you said is it's very hard to plan upstream for problems that we don't acknowledge as problems. 
It's something in the book I call problem blindness, which is this idea that that sometimes we can kind of acclimate to issues and we come to take them for granted, or maybe we just literally don't see them. Like a more, a less loaded or big example of this is is the story of this guy named Marcus Elliott, who's a, an MD who's become a, a major athletic trainer. So he joined the Patriots back in the late 90s when they had been suffering a, a rash of hamstring injuries to some of their players. And, you know, it'll just wreak havoc on the team. And at the time, you know, people's take on injuries was sort of like a shrug of the shoulders. It was just like, well, you know, football's a tough game. It's violent. People are colliding with each other all the time. Of course, people are going to get hurt. It's just part of the deal. And Marcus Elliott had a very different point of view. His point of view was, look, most injuries are the result of inadequate preparation. And people just weren't completely buying this. But the Patriots gave him a chance. So he comes in. First thing he does was he just demolishes what he called a one-size-fits-all training program. And he sort of painted it as the goal of training at that time was to make players bigger and stronger. You know, so picture him bench pressing and squatting and that sort of thing. And and his point was the positions require such different muscle strengths and and kind of practice opportunities that we need First of all, we need different training for different roles. And second of all, we need even different training for different people. Because while all the wide receivers may need a common set of talents, they may have different muscle issues. Like one receiver may have a left hamstring that's a lot stronger than the right. And those kind of muscle imbalances predispose you to getting injured. And so Elliot did this triage approach where he, number one, concentrated on the specialized players most likely to get a hamstring injury. And number two, he kind of triaged by which of those players, based on an analysis of their strength, were most likely to develop hamstring injuries, and he creates custom training programs for them. Anyway, net-net, they went from having about 21 or 22 hamstring injuries the year before he came to having three after his approach. And so all of a sudden, people started to take this seriously. People, maybe Marcus Elliott's <laughs> onto something here. And now these kinds of PT and custom training approaches to sports is pretty much the norm. But if you kind of, if you zoom out of that story and forget about hamstrings, forget about football, what, what you see there is you got a situation where nobody really buys into the problem. Injuries, well, yeah, that's bad. We don't like injuries, but it's just something that happens. And so Marcus Elliott has to come in and basically convince them, no, this is actually a problem that we can do something about. And he has to show them so they can see with their own eyes, oh my gosh, if you train people the right way, injuries really do go down. And, and that to me is like a classic example of upstream thinking, is taking a situation where no one really even realizes they're living with a problem that could be prevented until someone shows them. This idea of lack of ownership of the problem, right? He actually took it upon himself to say, hey, I'm going to at least try to address this problem. Many of us are walking around knowing there's a problem, okay? Injuries are a mm -hmm. problem, but not many of us are thinking or even motivated to personally try to solve that problem. How can we get people to think more upstream? And whether we're leaders and we're trying to get our team members to think more upstream or even ourselves personally to be more effective and save lives as we're seeing in this crisis. You've just hit on one of the big themes of the book, which is downstream work, as, as we've talked about repeatedly, is, is kind of demanded of us. You know, right now, 
in nurses and doctors, I mean, the kind of hopes of a nation rest on their shoulders. I mean, they have to go to work. They have to do this very risky work on our behalf to, to save lives and, and keep us whole. Upstream work, by contrast, is often basically voluntary. You know, back to some of those preparations that could have been made for the pandemic, back to Marcus Elliott on the Patriots. It happened because, you know, a group of people took it on their shoulders to say, this problem is not one of our making. You know, Marcus Elliott didn't cause the hamstring problems, but he said, I'm in a position where I can fix it. And one of my favorite stories in the book is about uh, this doctor in Tennessee who's a, a pediatrician. Uh, he's just the kind of guy who could have been a figure in the community, retired with a lot of people loving him and loving his work. But at Critical Fork in the Road, he came across this article in Pediatrics, the journal. And a couple of people had written an article challenging pediatricians to take ownership of a problem that was not of their making. And that was deaths and injuries caused by automobile accidents. I should say this story is taking place in the 70s. And so the kind of state of the art in the 70s was most vehicles had seat belts. Nobody used them. Virtually nobody used car seats, even though the technology did exist. And they certainly weren't mandated anywhere legally. And so the writers of this pediatrics article were making the case, hey, at that time, more kids were dying inside cars than outside them. Talk about a sobering stat. I mean, it was routine. Like in the book, I kind of joke. These days, if someone drove around with like a couple of toddlers unsecured in the backseat of their car, I mean, can you imagine the outcry that would result? I mean, there would be a shaming video on Twitter with 7 million views, you know. But in the 70s, that was normal. That was just what people did. Well, you know, AJ is from Michigan, but he might be a little young for this. But my parents always had large American cars. I remember specifically this 78 Monte Carlo And I remember my aunt's car was another large American car. And the doors would always be the first things to sort of of wear out. And I'm 46. So I remember we were coming around the bend in my mom's Monte Carlo, this big, heavy door. And it would just, you had to slam it pretty hard in order for it to close. And we hit this turn and the door opened and my cousin rolls out of the car. <laughs> oh my God, I hope he's and, okay. But, I shouldn't be laughing so, before I know that. Well, we, we, you know, we collect him and we get back to my grandparents' house where my aunt was. And we're like, yeah, he fell out of the car on the turn, but he, you know, it got a couple scrapes, but he's fine. And she, she looks at him and she goes, are you all right? He goes, yeah, mom. And they're like, oh, okay. Like that would not... <laughs> That, I mean, there would be somebody in jail after that story today. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, that is a perfect snapshot of what the the state of the art was for car safety at that time. And so Dr. Bob Sanders reads this article and gets like radicalized by this. He, He basically thinks, by God, you're right. I should be doing something about this. I mean, if I care about the the health of my kids that I serve, that's not just about, you know, sore throats and and getting tonsils out. That's about making sure they don't die in accidents. And so he gets uh, political and he starts lobbying across the state for for them to require car seats in cars. And and at first it's a it's a tough slog, but but he's active and he clearly has good motives. I mean he has no self-interest in this. And so people start to get behind this. Eventually, he manages to convince Tennessee to become the first state in the U.S. to require the use of car seats. 
And, and then, of course, within about five or six years, all the other 49 uh, jump in line. And so you look at a story like that, and that's the vision of an upstream hero, is somebody who took a problem that everybody knew was a problem, but everybody kind of took for granted, right? It's kind of like the Marcus Elliott situation. Well, if you're going to drive cars, there's going to be wrecks and, you know, kids are going to get hurt. And that, that sucks, but that's just yeah. our world. And then you have to find someone who says, wait a second, and shake us by the collar and say, this problem that we're tolerating, we can do something about this. That's step one. But then step two is he's not just saying, we, sh- you should do something about this. He's saying, I'm going to do something about this. And he takes it on his shoulders uh, to pass this legislation that was critical to uh, to preserve the safety of his patients. And that guy is a name that probably no one listening to this podcast knew before this. And yet that guy, his legacy, he passed away a few years ago, but his legacy is hundreds, if not thousands of children who were not hurt or not killed because of accidents. And that is powerful. I think you're going to need to tie that safety around a dollar sign in order to get people to recognize. And certainly when for AJ and I, for a lot of the business folks that we have interviewed on this show, there's a lot of talk about find a way to add value to this company, find a way to add more dollars to their revenue and you'll have a, a place there. But if you can find a way rather than adding, but protecting a dollar then perhaps that would be a way to get some people to start looking at companies from a more upstream uh, position and help them out and to find value to be added. I think there is a lot of that focus has been how do we add money, a, a dollar sign to that front end? I think that's a fair point. And I think especially inside organizations, you're right. We've got to figure out how to slap a price tag on some of these things that we know we have to do. And I think if if I were giving advice to people who are lobbying for some of these preventive type interventions, I would say use some metaphors that people already understand. Like we already go and get oil changes in our cars every three months or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And it's that's not any fun. And there's no emergency. We don't do that because our car's on fire. We do that because we know it's a smart investment today that's going to save us a lot more money and a lot more grief down the road. And so if you can take that metaphor into your organization and just point out, like with cybersecurity, it's one of these things that everybody knows is a risk and everybody knows is probably going to happen to you or one of your competitors in the next five or six years. Why are we waiting to invest in that? This is a classic situation where we don't want to be the the person who had the car that didn't get an oil change for five years. Like we need to be making investments in cybersecurity today. So I think pointing out to whoever your boss is, whoever the decision-making agents are, there are certain situations in your organization where you're already using smart oil change type philosophies, Mm -hmm. but others where you're not, and that's where the danger is. I think you pointed one out in the book, a great story, and I believe it was the LinkedIn story that folks who were onboarded onto their subscription service within the first 30 days tended to retain their business their subscription rather than if they hadn't been onboarded, it was foreseen that they would easily, the churn would be rather high. Exactly right. So at this time, we're talking here about this. I just use LinkedIn like to connect with people and that sort of thing. But a lot of people use LinkedIn to recruit. And and that's how LinkedIn makes Mm -hmm. a lot of its money is selling a subscription uh, product to companies so they can recruit employees. At that time, you know, it's an annual subscription and the churn rate was about 30%, which is not all that great. 
and the philosophy at that time, this is about 10 years ago, was you really start to pay attention to the account about a month before it lapses, you know, because you're 30 days away from figuring out whether they are retained or not. And probably a lot of people's bonuses depended on that. And so you swoop in in the 11th hour and you try to provide some value and make sure they're going to they're going to re-up. And a friend of mine, Dan Shapiro, was the head of sales at the time. And he he started asking, hey, do we have enough data at this point where we can mm-hmm. figure out like when we could have predicted that the people who churned, the people who didn't renew, weren't going to resubscribe with us. And it turned out they had all the data. They just hadn't really analyzed it that way. And the surprise was that they could predict as early as like three to four weeks into the subscription wow. who was going to renew and who wasn't. And so they're scratching their heads saying, how could, how could <laughs> we know after three or four weeks that it's an annual subscription? What's going on that, w- that would make something predictive that early? And the answer was was what you flagged. It was people basically kind of got the hang of LinkedIn and started getting value right away, or they never did. And so Dan Shapiro says, we need to ship this around. All these resources we're putting into, quote unquote, saving accounts in the 11th hour, let's push those back in time and have a world-class onboarding program where we get on the phone with people in week one or week two, and we say, hey, thanks for being a customer. I'm going to walk you through this. They wouldn't just handhold with customers. They would actually do some of the work for them. You know, if you were trying to hire a software developer in Atlanta, they would show you, okay, here's what you do. I'm going to help you set the filters to get the kind of person you need. By the way, I've also drafted a kind of initial outreach email. You can tweak it however you want, but I just wanted to make it Mm -hmm. easier for you. That's upstream thinking, right? And it's so much better aligned with the user because all of a sudden – when you take that view of your product, like I want you to get value from this product in the first month so that 11 more yes. months from now you're going to renew, it starts to make you a much better business because you're, you're thinking, how can we add value? How can I make sure you're getting value? You know, the old days of those 1-800 number uh, infomercials <laughs> at 3 a.m. where they make something look good for three minutes and then you buy and then it sucks when it shows up, like those days are dead. You know, in, in a subscription world – the interest of the company is not just to kind of pump and dump products and, you know, ring the cash register. They have to care whether you're actually using it and getting value from it. I think what all of these examples have in common is someone taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. And you introduced this phrase that I had never heard in the book called psychological standing. And many of these problems that we're talking about here, what is it? Tennessee pediatrician have to do with saving lives of kids in cars, right? He's a doctor. He's supposed to be treating patients. Or what does this person at LinkedIn have to really do with an onboarding process? It's outside of their purview. But they all stood up and took responsibility. And this concept of psychological standing, I I found so fascinating. Can you break that down for our audience and then we can start talking about what we can do to create this? Yeah, absolutely. And and I have to admit, I had never heard this term either before I started digging into this research. The problem that they were trying to solve was what keeps people from getting involved with causes, for instance? Um, what, What would make you sign a petition or go to a march? And the researcher's argument was, It's not that people opt out of those activities because they have nothing to gain, that sometimes they're reluctant to participate because they don't feel like they have a proper role in it. So so to be more tangible, you know, imagine you're a young man in college 
and you're kind of appalled by the incidents of date rape on campus. And maybe there's a protest march going on that's led by women. What may be going through your head is, I really support what they're doing, but but do I have a place there? Like, is it improper for me to go out and kind of be part of the crowd or, or, or will, they, will they feel like I'm an interloper? And so that's where that phrase psychological standing comes from is, is you may feel as that young man in that situation that you lack the psychological standing to do something. And here the researchers are using the metaphor of legal standing where you can't bring a lawsuit against a corporation, for instance, just because they're doing something that annoys you. You have to prove that they hurt you in some way. They cost you something, and that creates legal standing. And so by extension, this is psychological standing. So back to the, the example of the young man, the researchers found that it was possible to extend a sense of psychological standing to people in surprisingly simple ways. Like in, in one of their studies, and this gets sort of complicated, so I'll try to just give you the, uh, the short version. They asked people to get involved with an opposition to a, something called Proposition 174. So just assume that you're, you're in college. This was a study conducted at Princeton, and Proposition 174 is something bad that affects the opposite gender from you. So for women, it was something bad that affected men and men vice versa. So the question is, would you write a letter? Would you be part of the opposition to Proposition 174? And so this is tapping into that psychological standing thing. Like if you're a man and Proposition 174 hurts women, do you feel comfortable getting involved? And they found that they could significantly boost people's willingness to contribute to the opposition just by reframing it in the name of the organization from Princeton students opposed to Proposition 174 to Princeton men and women opposed to Proposition 174. You see what I mean? J just by adding men and women in the title, it was a way of kind of extending standing and saying, hey, you're welcome. This is not just a one gender thing. This is both of us. And so by extension back to our world, the pediatrics article that I talked about that, that kind of mobilized Dr. Bob Sanders to fight for car seats, that was a terrific example mm -hmm. of extending psychological standing, of saying to pediatricians something that was very counterintuitive. I mean, pediatricians have nothing to do with making cars. They have nothing to do with accidents. They don't even see patients most likely after an accident happens. They go to the hospital. And so it was unnatural in a way, for pediatricians to think that they could have a stake in this. But with this journal article, the advocates who wrote that article were saying, hey, you do have a stake. You are you know, probably the foremost uh, trusted advocate on health in these kids' lives, and you need to step up. You have a right to do this, and you have an obligation to do this. And so I think that's really powerful, that, that in organizations, sometimes there are these squishy problems with no clear owner you know, uh, sexual harassment uh, w would be at one end of the spectrum. And then you've got, you know, maybe business equivalents like the Expedia story we talked about earlier. Hey, there, there's a bunch of customers calling and I really don't feel like they should be calling, but it's not clear who owns this. It's just a squishy problem falling in the silos. And for those problems to get solved, somebody has to step up and take ownership. And probably whoever does that needs to extend standing to other people to know they can be part of it and that they should be part of it. I love that concept because it's so clear when we think about it from a legal perspective, mm -hmm. this idea of do you have standing to bring this case? And 
it takes one person taking responsibility in all of these instances to make massive improvements on such a grand scale. And I think everyone listening, we can sit here and complain about our current leadership. We could complain about how unprepared we were. But I think and I hope at the end of this, we all take more responsibility and we all try to look for ways to view problems in an upstream fashion, not in a reactive downstream fashion. And your book has seven questions that leaders need to ask themselves if you want to solve an upstream problem. I'd love to just wrap with the questions as we all think about uh, not only the problems we face in our careers or in our businesses, but at home and protecting our families and friends. Yeah, let's do this. So these are questions. If you're going to try to solve a problem before it happens, you've got to be thinking about these seven things. The, the first is, how will you unite the right people? So back to this idea that that to solve complicated problems, we often need to integrate people across silos, like in the Expedia situation. The second is, how will you change the system? Back to that quote that we've been uh, talking about a lot. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. If you want a different result, better change the system. And then related to that is the next question, where can you find a point of leverage in the system? And often the best way for us to find, hey, where in the system is a place that we can affect, that we can make some progress, often the best way to do that is to get as close as possible to the problem. You know, can you read the case reports of the last 50 people who have called the call center? Can you study in the 70s as Dr. Bob Sanders? Can you study the last 50 kids who've gone to the hospital because of a car accident? You know, how many of those could have been prevented by car seats? We study problems to find points of leverage. The next question, the fourth, is how will you get early warning of the problem? So that was the, the LinkedIn story of if we want to make sure the customers don't churn, we need advance warning of that. And they figured out, hey, we're getting really advance warning. We'll know by the third or fourth week whether they're on track to, uh, to be retained or not. Let's do something about it. The fifth is something we haven't talked much about, which is how will you know you're succeeding so remember that quote from the public health expert that was like, if, if we do our jobs right, you know, our budget gets cut. How do you prove when something doesn't happen? Like, how would you prove that the oil changes on your car made any difference at all? And so you get into these really complicated questions of causality and, and how will you be able to establish that, that you're going the right direction? The sixth question is, how will you avoid doing harm? which is to say, when we start tinkering with complicated systems, you know, we push on one part of the system, but then inevitably there are consequences in, in other parts of that same system. And, and A, will we be paying enough attention to know what the ripple effects of our work are? And B, can we anticipate some of the things that we might unwittingly do when we intervene in one part of the system? And can we take steps to potentially prevent some bad unintended consequences? And then the seventh question is, who will pay for what doesn't happen? So uh, in the case of the oil change, the answer is you. You're paying now your 60 bucks or whatever to get an oil change to prevent the likelihood of some future malfunction in your car. But then if you keep following that path to complicated problems at the organizational or societal level, it gets really difficult to figure out. Like, for instance, if... Um, uh, if a pregnant mother does not smoke, I mean, there's tremendous societal benefit from that. I mean, even beyond the benefit to, to the baby and the mother, society benefits from a lot of the positive ripple effects. But who's going to pay? 
to make sure that that woman doesn't smoke. She's she's probably not going to pay because the, the, these women are often quite poor. Who do you point to that's going to pay for that? And inside businesses, in the Expedia story, that had to be authorized by the CEO. Uh, what if the CEO wasn't interested in that issue? Who could you have gotten to use their budget to pay for customers not calling the call center? That's not a line <laughs> item on anybody's budget, right? <laughs> And so this is the kind of gauntlet of challenges that we have to walk. And my point in outlining those questions is not that it's easy. This is not one of those situations where it's just like a a five-minute win. I think a lot of upstream challenges are really complicated, and they take a while to unfold. But the case I make in the book is these are the wins that matter. These are the wins that when you get to the end of your work or the end of your life, you look back and say – that was how I left this world a little bit better than I found it. You know, I made a difference in systems. I paid attention to a problem no one else was paying attention to. I mobilized a community to stop something that people didn't think could be stopped. And so, yes, it's hard. Yes, it can be a difficult gauntlet to run, but boy, is it worth it. Absolutely. And we hope that our leaders read this book I know they may not have time currently in this crisis, but we need to start thinking upstream. And we've enjoyed your books with your brother, Chip. What made you decide to do upstream as a solo project? It was a pretty simple decision, really. I mean, we uh, our last book was called The Power of Moments, and Chip was getting involved in a lot of fascinating stuff. He's got a, a gig working for Google X, which is sort of like the, the moonshot factory at Google, mm-hmm. and he's doing a lot of angel investing and other stuff. And and, and I'm much more simplistic. I'm just like a guy who loves to research and write. And and so he was kind of feeling like he wanted a break after the last book. And I was feeling like, hey, I'm ready for the next thing. And so he just decided to sit this cycle out. So it was um, it was very different. You know, we wrote four books together and then this one solo. I, it was like I had to develop a whole new set of skills. And you dedicate the book to your brother keeping you out of law school. Was this an upstream decision <laughs> by your brother? Talk about an upstream win. Yeah, so I was, um, maybe some of your listeners can relate to this. I, I went to undergrad and was a liberal arts major, you know, highly, highly profitable uh, subject to get as your major. Yeah. And so right about, you know, probably halfway <laughs> through my senior year, I'm like, hmm, I'm going to actually have to get a job in the foreseeable future. And so um, the best possible choice was, well, I'll just go get a law degree because that's what liberal arts majors do when they have to get practical. <laughs> and so I applied to a bunch of law schools and, and I got accepted to one. And, and Chip convinced me. He knew me and he knew I would not enjoy the law. And so he said, um, if you just defer for a year and, um, and we'll work on some projects together. And, and his agenda was, I'm just going to find something else that will interest Dan enough that he'll, he'll, he'll kind of <laughs> wake up from this, this fever dream. And so he actually paid for, for a year of apartment rental in Chicago where he was living at the time, uh, just so I would have like the luxury of figuring out some other stuff to work on. And we worked on some projects together. And eventually I, I ended up taking a job with this guy in Austin who became an angel investor to the company I started uh, with with my co-founder, Amy Bryant, called ThinkWell. And so anyway, long story short, Chip bought me a year of my life when I came to realize this was a horrible idea going to law school. And I found something I was passionate about. I started this company and did that for years. And and so that was the ultimate upstream gesture, is saving someone from from a career that would have made them miserable. <laughs> well, kudos to Chip for that. It- 
Thank you so much for researching and writing this book. I, I can't imagine a more timely period for us to read and think about these upstream problems with this calamity that we're currently facing. We really appreciate your time, Dan. Yes. Stay safe and healthy through this. Thanks so much. And I appreciate all the Thank prep you. you did. It was, it was a really fun conversation. We thoroughly enjoyed the book. And it, as Johnny said at the start, it's made us rethink our own systems internally here at mm -hmm. the company and, and look for more upstream ways to solve the problems that we're all facing. Thanks again. You know, Johnny, as I was reading that book, I couldn't help but think about the problems that we're currently facing and how many of them are happening upstream and we're not even looking in the right places for their answers. It's difficult not to think that way while you're reading that book. It just seems so timely. And of, I, of course, it also forced me to start looking into my own life and start looking upstream so that I would be ahead of my problems as well. And if there's one thing that this quarantine has taught us is it's a new opportunity to ask ourselves why. Why are we doing that? Why have we followed that process? Is it really serving us? Is it solving the problems that we have personally or in our business? And I know here at The Art of Charm, we started questioning some of the processes that we'd been running for years, decade even, understanding, is this really driving the core numbers? Is this really important to us? And thankfully, this has given us that opportunity to question those exact things. I agree 100%. And as we move forward, our newfound vision upstream is only going to make this journey that much more fun. That's why I love doing the show, because every lesson we learn, we get to use in our own lives. And that's been so rewarding over the last few years of us hosting the show, bringing on these great guests. And I know this episode, I was even taking notes to help improve the art of charm. This week, we got a shout out. Hello, my name is Gargana, and I came across your podcast some time ago. I just wanted to send a long overdue message of thank you for the amazing and insightful content you create. I'd usually enjoy it on my day trips, but under the current coronavirus situation, I've decided to improve by listening to the podcast that I've missed. I stick to doing it every day while enjoying the sun. In case you're curious, the other things on my list include working on my German, on my coding skills, and exercising. A slow but steady process alongside keeping up with my work engagements as I've been working remotely even before the storm. I hope you guys are safe. Greetings and best wishes from Italy. I have to say, Johnny, that's the one thing that we've heard time and time again from our audience is trying to make the most of this opportunity. We understand how mentally taxing it is, how physically taxing it is, and just how difficult it is to have our routines uprooted. And those of us who can make the most of this time, like Gargana, working on our coding skills, exercise, learning German, and of course, enjoying the podcast is some of the best time spent during quarantine. That's great. And it also allows me to know we're not the only ones who are focused on the betterment of ourselves and, and for the lives of the people around us. Absolutely. And that's why I really enjoyed having Dan on because understanding how to find problems upstream Hopefully, with the leaders that we have listening in our audience, they can go out and start solving those problems in their businesses as well. And here's your challenge for this week. Each day, set aside 30 minutes and take out your journal. We want you to list the struggles that you're dealing with on an ongoing basis. Those can be big ones, like a very small social circle or an annoying team member, or smaller ones, like a computer that keeps crashing on you twice a day. Then, 
For the rest of the week, use those same 30 minutes as what's called Slack, a dedicated time buffer to work on an upstream solution, as we learned from Dan. How you could grow that social circle or have that difficult conversation with that team member or go into the online forums to find out why your computer is crashing. Yes, it's just 30 minutes and that might solve the problem right away. But you have 30 minutes for the rest of the week or however long you need to finally dedicate some quality time to it. So let us know how that went for you. I know that Johnny and I have been finding lots of slack with quarantine to fix some problems that we had swept under the rug, and we want to hear from you. We're always excited to hear from you. Send us your thoughts by going to theartofcharm.com slash questions. You can also email us questions at theartofcharm.com and find us on social media at The Art of Charm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, catch Johnny's weekday coffees. 8.30 a.m. Pacific time. Also, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a big favor? Could you go on over to iTunes and rate this podcast? It would really mean the world to us. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery and engineered by Sam Jay and Bradley Denham at Cast Media Studios in sunny downtown Hollywood. Until next week, I'm Johnny. And I'm AJ. Have a good one.